Hey, this is episode 11 of Dropping Game, and I'm here with Ian Fenton, one of the founders of the Australian Archery Museum, and just had a, just finished having a tour of it, and a lot of a lot of work going into it. Yeah, be proud of that, wouldn't you? Yeah, Cody. Nice meeting you, mate. Yeah. Thanks for coming down and having a look. Yeah, oh, it's... I, got, I didn't know what I was expecting, but I'm, I'm glad I've, I've come and had a look. A lot of history, isn't it? A, a lot of history. Yeah, it's a pity that if we can't find a permanent home for it, Cody, that thing, all that history, and it's taken a fair bit of history to get together, is going to disappear in 2020. Because, uh, of course, Roma and I are getting on in age... And the associations don't seem to give a damn about the history. So all this collection, which has taken... It started in 2014 and has taken all this time to put together. We've got something like 70 bows in there. And these are not just bows there. A lot of them are Australian-made, custom-made bows. And as you saw, one bow there's over 100 years of age. We've got an arrow in there, uh, which was given to us by Ed Lansky. It's a 16th century arrow, so there's a lot of history in there and a lot of, uh, well, I think you've learned a lot about Australian history this morning. Oh, yeah. Well, a lot, and there's even, even um, certain parts of archery I didn't even know existed. Yeah, you were kind of surprised about flight archery. The, yeah. The, the uh, art of shooting, or the, it's a technical, the most technical part of archery is trying to get an arrow to go the longest distance. And I was telling you about Harry Drake, who's an American, who shot an arrow over over a mile. Uh, and, uh, of course, he used a foot, foot bow, and it wasn't a compound, it was a foot bow, that he made himself. And poor old Harry uh, met his demise, and demise in, uh, by a car, uh, motorcycle accident. But he, uh, he had great contacts with Australia, and the museum has a uh, one of his original uh, flight bows. We're very, very privileged and lucky to have it. We've got one of his uh, foot bows, uh, flight bows, in here, and letters he wrote to Ross Heron, who was one of our pioneers of flight archery. Mm, yeah. we'll, we'll go from the start. How did you yourself get into archery? Into archery? Well, into yeah. the museum? We'll, we'll go back to the beginning and whip archery itself. Well, as a kid, I was very much interested in falconry and archery, uh, and I was in scouting. But archery seemed to be one of those things that's bred into you, and it just comes out, and you like comes out of the pores of your skin. And uh, when I was four years of age, my brother made me a bow. That was 1947. He made me my first bow, and I've been shooting a bow ever since. So that's, I'm now 76 years of age, going on 77. And so I've been shooting a bow all that time. So I guess I've done all the facets of archery, except light archery, I didn't do it. But uh, I've done compounds, I've done longbows, recurves, hunting, target, field, you name it, I've done it. Um, uh, running tournaments, uh, promoting, writing articles, doing art. Whatever it is on archery, I've been there and done that, but I'm only a beginner. Be beginners wouldn't be the word I'd use. <laughs> uh, I'd say you have a bit of experience. Slow learner. Slow learner, that'll do. So archery is a... I was thinking about this, you know, when you said you we were going to talk. Archery is, starts off as being a hobby and ends up being a way of life. I mean... What other sport can you start at four years or one year or three years of age or whatever it is and go through to 80 or 90 years of age and still do the sport? Name one sport, other than fishing, of course. Well, I don't exactly see too many 80-year-olds playing rugby. No, that's right, but you can see a lot of 80-year-olds doing archery. Yeah. So, in fact, there's one guy in Western Australia who makes bows and he's 90 years of age. So I think he stopped bowing, he's up to 95 or something years of age. He stopped making them because he's in a retirement home. But it illustrates the point that, uh, 
you know, archery is just a way of life and a family sport. Mm. So now we'll come back to a bit more modern. Where did the idea for the museum start? The start of the uh, Hall of Fame, um, well, no, let's go back to 1967 when I started the Trophy Bowhunters of Australia. I, I didn't show you, but there's a little card up there that I did for the Trophy Bowhunters of Australia. You might have seen it when we were talking. And it said in there, to aim is to start an Australian bowhunting museum. That was in 1967 that I put that on that card. So it's taken me until 2014 to actually do that museum. And the idea came from the fact that over that period of time, I saw a lot of people who did wonderful things but never got acknowledged for it. And I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about other people. A lot of them have died and a lot of them never, the sport has never ever acknowledged them or said thanks to them. And what they've done has disappeared. The modern archer or people over the, the period are more concerned at their own indulgements uh, uh, than what they are about what others have done. It's a very soulless sport, archery. It's a very self kind of sport. You don't see too many team archers going together. So archery is something you do yourself and you try to excel and better yourself. So a lot of people are not interested in history. I'm not saying not everybody, but a lot of people are not interested. And of course, as you come into the sport, you only know the history from when you started. You don't go back. You might hear a few tales, but really your history starts when you start. And, uh, and what I found is that a lot of people were starting to write the history of archery, what they knew about it. So their version of archery or the history was totally different to the factual side of it. So I decided at my, before I die, I want to try and put the history down, which is, it's never been done before and it, there's no hope of it being done. So I thought by Roma and I would start and start the museum and then perhaps later on write a, a book. And this would be a carry on from the Hall of Fame. Yeah, right. So, oh, I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, let me go back to the Hall of Fame. The, uh, we started the Australian Archery Hall of Fame and Museum. Well, we set up the Hall of Fame and we got it going and it's still going thanks to one of the people who helped me and, that, uh, and she's still working on it. And of course, the, the, I'm out of the Hall of Fame. Um, I pulled out around about 2012 and uh, I had to went to America and I wanted to go back and retire back to the country. So I had to try and get out of there and make a life for myself in the country. But before I did, we did a lot of um, uh, the board of the Hall of Fame. We did a lot of investigations into how to make a museum. And of course, it, we found out it wasn't viable, namely because the museum's got to be placed in a building, whether we rent a building or whether we build a building or we buy a building. Well, we ain't got the money, buddy. <laughs> and I don't think too many people have got the money. But if you did start a museum, you rented a room, that is not just for one week, that's to go on for the future. Uh, add to that the cost of lighting, the cost of cabinets to put in the museum. Um, then you've got a staffing problem. Uh, who's gonna look after the museum? Who's gonna be around day in, day out? You can't pay them uh, money so because you couldn't afford it. So you have to have volunteers. Who would be there day in, day out um, waiting for somebody who possibly wants to see the museum. So it wasn't viable. So we, we looked at a portable museum, such as um, a, a bus that we could uh, uh, buy cheaply for about three or $4,000, uh, pull all the seats out, build cabinets in there, and run it around. And then we found out the cost of registration, the cost of tyres, the cost of a mechanic, the cost of upkeep and maintenance was too much for us and it only put a limited amount of people in. So then we looked at, a, uh, um, at getting a, a mobile um, a trailer that we could just put uh, isolated displays in and take to main shoots of archery, and not only target shoots, but field, bow hunting and whatever, and show them a bit. But only, again, we've got to be able to pay the petrol to, to tow it there 
and have people stay overnight and, and, and do it. It was just a big hassle and it was very a short thing. So we, uh, getting them, uh, mu the museum was decided too difficult, it was in a too hard basket. And so when Roma and I came to Bathurst, we built a big shed and, and had three uh, rooms put in it and lined and that, and two of them we've converted to the museum. And as you've seen, we've, we've got it fairly up to the roof with uh, items. Yeah, it's good neck, neck exercise for, the, for most of it. Yes, well, we're having our first awards in this June this year. And the idea is to try and draw public attention to the museum. Uh, nobody knows it exists. Um, we did seek uh, some um, uh, publications in one of the magazines and they weren't real keen because they could only put short stories in and that it takes a lot more to explain a history than a short story. So we gave that a miss. So with the help of Ben Solaris, we've opened a Facebook, which we're presenting, but the big thing, the first awards will be in in uh, June 16th this year in Bathurst at the RSL. It starts at 11 o'clock. It's $5 per person to go in. Um, you get a free gift when you get in, a badge, a memento badge to, to keep. That's our gift to you, plus a, a history book, the first history book ever um, turned out for archery in Australia. That's any sport of archery. Uh, that'll be, be your program and a book. It's got all the history of all the people. There's 22 people being presented with medals. As you know, the Perth Stoken Medal is for service to archery. There is uh, 10 people being presented with that and 22 people being presented with the Historical Achievements Medal. Now, what the hell is that, you said? Well, the Historical Achievements Medal is about people who do historical things in archery. In other words, let's give you a really good one. Simon Fairweather was the first person to win a gold medal in archery ever in Australia, an Olympic gold medal. So he definitely is a shortcoming. But there's people like, um, let's say, uh, uh, Ben Solaris, who you know, who's the first man to shoot, uh, first bow hunter to hunt on six continents. Uh, we have, um, and take game. And of course, he's the first bloke to take a Rocky Mountain sheep, uh, an Odaud, and also a, a Spanish Ibex. So he has done something historical. You get the idea of it? There's 22 people just like him. Yep. And of course, there's target archers. This, is, this museum's not about just bow hunting. It's about target archery, traditional, flight, all phases of archery. Or archery in all its forms. Yes, and of course we've got two of the icons, historical icons of archery, Hans Wright from Melbourne and Del Roach. Now these two people were mega stars of archery back in the 50s, 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, they're a household name then, and do you know, if you say to somebody in, in target archery, Del Roach or Hans Wright, they say, I, I remember, I referred their name. And I'm sure after you leave here today, you'll remember their name too. Oh yeah, um, I'll remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's a little bit about the people. Both of those people, Hans and Del, will be here. They haven't seen each other since 1972. Um, and remember they shot in Australian Championships, World Championships together and they'll see each other. They haven't seen each other since 1972. So we're looking forward to seeing, having them up. Adele stopped shooting. She, um, she hurt her back years ago, so she couldn't continue shooting. But Hans still coaches. He's one of Australia's best coaches in archery. He's still teaching kids how to shoot. So very good. Hmm. So where the idea for the medals come from? Well, um, we wanted to salute people who've given their... The Hall of Fame picks people out, or you've got to apply to the Hall of Fame, and you've got to be give X amount of years of service to the sport, but you've also got to have things that have made you worthy of being put in the Hall of Fame. And a committee or a jury considers all the applications and selects, it's pretty hard to get into the Hall of Fame, selects special people. Now, Margaret and, um, and her husband, Graham, uh, they're the, the people who are keeping the Hall of Fame going and uh, the Alliance has now backed them and it's still going. 
Um, they're the the, uh, the Hall of Fame. Now, other people who uh, will never get into the Hall of Fame, probably done spectacular things, but have never never been acknowledged. People who who've spent their life um, emptying toilets and digging target mounds and painting targets and running the canteen, canteen, um, doing you know putting targets out, doing the things to keep so other people can enjoy archery have never been acknowledged. Uh, they've put years of service in as secretaries, presidents, whatever, treasurers, never ever been acknowledged. So we decided that, Roma and I, that we needed to give, to acknowledge them and give them something to say, hey, the sport says thank you for what you've done for the sport. So we created a thing called the Percy Stoken Medal for service to archery. Now, I, you saw that today, it's a beautiful medal, it's a, quite large, it's about, uh, what, about a, uh, not quite a hundred, but about 80 millimetres around, yep. very heavy, one-sided in a blue velvet case, magnificent medal. Uh, we've designed it with our logo on that, but it has on it the, the HMS Perf and the name Percy Stoken Medal. It has around the side the Australian Archery Museum and a, a service to archery on the bottom. Now, Percy Stoken was a, an Australian champion in 1939. He was an Australian and New Zealand target champion and um, he served on a ship called... The, his last posting was on a ship called the HMAS Perth. Now... Um, Percy was him, uh, also a foundation member of the um, uh, Archery Society of New South Wales, which was a club then, but today it's an organisation. He was one of the founding people. He also, uh, when he went to sea and, uh, as a member of the crew of the HMSA, HMAS Perth, he went visited England and he actually went to Oxford and uh, he won a, uh, one of their trophies off them and for a colonial to do that back in 1939 was a bit of a stigma. They didn't really appreciate that. <laughs> he also toured, went to America to the World Fair over there and managed to go with the New York Archers and won a small trophy, only a small trophy. He won two in America. And he visited Perth, um, uh, went over there at the ship and uh, he gave demonstrations and became very... He was a kind of a, li a likeable kind of a guy. But one of the newspaper clippings you saw today had a, a Percy. We found it quite by a million to one chance we found it. And it has a picture of him, but also his wife and young daughter. His young daughter was 12 years of age in this 1939 paper clipping. Well, his young daughter's name is June. Well, June is now 88 years of age, and June will be presenting these medals. Isn't that incredible? At the, her father's medals uh, at the uh, awards in, in, in June this year, June again. But Percy um, last visited the, his club in 1942. On March the 1st, um, he was a member of 686 crew aboard the uh, HMAS Perth, and they were um, they were in the Estrada states in Strait in uh, off Java, which is Indonesia, and they were with a, a, an American uh, cruiser. And they uh, come across a ship. They were trying to look for the Japanese, and there's a whole story. If anybody, I'm cutting it short, but they came across a ship who didn't fly identification flags, and suddenly they realised they were face to face with the Japanese. So they engaged them, although they didn't have much ammunition or fuel. They'd, they'd had a battle before. We're heading back to get more fuel. And around the corner, so to speak, were the Japanese fleet and the torpedoes, the submarines torpedoed the, uh, the Perth. And out of the 686 people, uh, only 214 made it back to Australia. The rest were killed either during the, the encounter when it was sunk or taken prisoners in, in a prisoner's camp. Percy was last seen here, he was a very strong athlete and a good swimmer. He survived the sinking, was heading for an island, um, which was a long way away, and there were three other blokes, and he said to them in the water, 
they were kind of not as strong as swinging it and he uh, they were battling the currents and he said look I'll, I'll have breakfast ready for you guys when you get there the island was a couple of miles away and that's the last the official record of seeing Percy Stoke and he uh, didn't survive and whether he was swept to sea with the uh, currents or whether he drowned or whether he was killed when he met the island nobody knows so that's yeah. Perth Stoken and the Stoken Medal. So yeah. that's one of the medals, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a fantastic medal. It is because we want him remembered. Uh, we've, we've been too long looking towards America for Fred Bear and Howard Hill as our heroes in archery. We've done that for 50 years. You know, we've worshipped, worshipped the Americans. And nobody's really stood out in Australia as being a hero. Well, I can tell you now, mate, we've come a long way since those, in those 50 years. We now have Percy Stoken as a hero, if we, can, if we can get the message out to people that he was a true hero. But we've got modern people like Adam Greentree in, in bow hunting, Bill Sol uh, uh, Ben Solaris, and of course, Bill Baker. Now, they're the true, true bow hunting heroes. Uh, heroes. We've got Dell and of course Hans and, and many more of our target archers who have created history on a world basis. Look at Simon Fairweather who won a gold medal, the best in the world. We've got him in Australia. So Australia is now maturing and we have our own heroes and we're not looking to America anymore. We're looking towards our Australian heroes. And that's what the Hall of Fame's about and that's what the museum's about. Awesome. So when you started the museum, well, where did you decide the starting point of the timeline of the museum would begin? Like, Oh, that was very easy. Uh, the museum started by accident, actually. Um, I, over the last 60 years, I've kept a lot of the, the history. I've uh, been involved with Trophy Bowen of Australia, Trophy Takers, AAA, ABA. And so over the years, I've kept mementos and newspaper clippings but I was there when the start of bow hunting in Australia, and I'm the first organised bow hunting in Australia, and I was also involved in the early bow hunting things. So I knew all these people and that. So I, when we built the uh, the shed up the back and lined it, one one room was to be a studio for painting, one room was to be a den where the boys could get up there and swear their heads off and have a few beers and have a little bit of archery equipment, a few talk bow hunting. Well, I, put, I started to put out some of the posters and then put out some of the clipping. And soon I realised uh, we were buying cabinets and uh, more cabinets appeared. And then, then uh, 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 a couple of my mates started to give me stuff in bow hunting. And then all of a sudden, target archery started to come in and I started to get uh, the Ross Heron collection of bows, which you saw, magnificent bows. The flight bows came in for target. And then traditional staff started to come in, books came in, and then suddenly we went from a private collection to a bow hunting museum, and then all of a sudden, as you've seen up there now, it's an archery museum covering all the sport, and it's growing, it's still growing. Yeah. So you're, you've been involved in almost, obviously you have been involved in all aspects of archery, I remember you were telling me up there of how you were talking about this scoring of game and trying to move away from that native back in the day. Yeah, well, back in the early days, and we were talking about, they were joking about it, but most of the bow hunting uh, started to actually come from George Scott in Sydney. George started uh, making equipment when there was archery equipment you couldn't buy in Australia. He started to manufacture arm guards and quivers and bows and, and arrows and that back in the 1930s and 40s. And it wasn't until 1950s that he became involved with Damon Howard in America and started to bring bow blanks out and importing American gear. Well, as soon as he did that, none of the sports still sold that stuff. They imported, were still bore importing a, a little bit of English gear and some French gear, uh, but they also, there was a few um, a true flight in Australia out of uh, Bill Bowden and them in Victoria were making target arrows and, and a few bows, there were lemonwood bows and that. 
English bows were coming in from Apollo in England, and uh, of course CFAB from Sweden, Jacques fiberglass bows from France. They were available in places like Mick Simmons and Pick of the World Sports Store. And of course, there was one guy in 1923 um, down in Melbourne who started to make bows, and you saw a 100-year-old bow down there to, today, which was one of his products. Um, it was from that point of bow hunting that George collected around him people who were interested in bow hunting because he was selling the gear. So the, he star, started a, an organisation called the Australian Bow Hunters Association, ABA. But ABA wasn't an organisation, it was just a, he, he got the American, uh, uh, American Bow Hunting Association, which is ABA, and they had a green badge, a gray, green round four inch uh, badge, and it was embroidered with a, an old flint, a silver flint arrowhead on it, an Indian arrowhead on it, and it had ABA, and that suited Australian Bow Hunting Association. So anybody who dealt with him could buy one of these badges and put it on their arm, and they would call themselves the Australian Bow Hunting Association. There was no organisation just that they buy it. Well, then he turned out a. Uh, they started to put records together, you know, and uh, some of the records, uh, as you saw today in Jack Pollock's 1967 Book of Australian uh, Sporting Records, had people shooting kangaroos and wombats and uh, and flora, fauna and fauna, not the flora, but uh, he had them um, recording these, and and as you saw, there was four bore records of approximately 400 uh, pounds. Now let's go into that pounds business. That's a bit like Dawn Fraser swimming a, a hundred yards in approximately one minute. <laughs> I mean, whatever the approximation is, is a guess. Now picture yourself out in the bush and you shoot this pig. You can't very well big carry the pig back to the car and have it weighed, so you guesstimated what the weight is. Now picture two blokes picking up a pig and saying, what do you think that is? And the bloke will say, oh, I think that's about 80, 90 pound. And then on the way back as they're going, gee, that's a big pig. I think that could be 100 pound. By the time they got back to the car, it was 150. By the time they got back to Sydney and told it a couple of times, 250. By the time the rest of them got hold of it, it was 300. And by the time it went into the record books, a lot of them were 400 pound. Now, I've been around for a long time and there's very few boars I've ever seen 400 pound. Not, not our area, the area of wild pigs we have in this part of the country. Certainly you get some captain cookers from up the top and some, I've seen some big ones coming out of Western Australia. But the big thing against it that we decided that they were shooting kangaroos and kangaroos are made up of sinew, very little blood, but mostly muscle. You put an arrow in a, in a kangaroo, it's gonna hang in there and most of the bad publicity becomes of kangaroos with this arrow, which signifies cruelty. And people photograph it, and the, the people who wanted to see sporting band write it up as being cruelty, and that's what it is. It is cruelty. So we decided that we had to get them away from that or the sport would be, and that was in 1967. And so we started the Trophy Bowhunters of Australia, uh, two of us, and... Um, we decided that we would give somebody a lolly if they shot a, shot a, a wild pig, a wild goat, um, you know, the feral animals, rather than the, the uh, native animals, and we'd give them Australia records, and that's how we started. We, we, uh, and today, that's taken for granted, but we still see a few kangaroos being published with arrows in them, and I, I can tell you now, the sport will not live very long if they continue to do that. I think bow hunters have a responsibility to stop thinking about themselves and think about the, the future of the sport. It rests with them. Mm. I'm sorry to uh, <laughs> to bring that bit of politics into it. No, that's that's fine. I mean, I, it needs to be discussed. Well, I think uh, 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 the associations are more worried. They've done their bit. ABA has really done a lot of, to uh, safeguard bow hunting. And that's why they were formed. Uh, Trophy Bowhunters of Australia was a measuring body. But when we started to run the safaris, people, because there was no governing body, they looked upon 
TBA or Trophy Bowens of Australia as being a governing body. They didn't want to be a governing body, they just wanted to measure records and declare records and give out game awards. So we got we started the the directors of TBA decided they would start a governing body and they and uh, Kev Whiting uh, took on the job of starting ABA with the support of TBA and he did a magnificent job and today uh, ABA is um, <clears throat> own a property at Mudgee, they own a magazine, um, they've done exceptionally well uh, and they're more field oriented than what they are bow hunting oriented because that's where the money is too and that's where the members are but they are still strongly behind bow hunting. So target archery, um, which was the main dominant force in the, the 40s and 48 and 50s and 60s, and now very much uh, lower in attendance or in numbers than what bow hunters. Bow hunters is ex bow hunting has exploded in Australia. Why do you think that is? I think the internet, where equipment is available, you can hop on the internet and get equipment all around the world. You don't have to join a club. You can uh, you can get all the all the instructions and how to set up bows, how to set equipment, how to make equipment on the internet. Um, it's if you want to go hunting, you don't have to go looking for a mate. You put your you can find your mates on the internet. Target archery. You can learn the latest techniques, see the latest equipment. It's just opened up a whole world. The sad part about it is the associations here are not going out and capitalising on it. They're um, they're doing their best, but there's not enough public awareness of archery. The bow hunters have got a magazine. Well, several magazines, magnificent, better than any American magazine, Australian bow hunting have got, um, and that's great. But the target archers are still struggling to get a, a national magazine. So, and target archery, of course, is the the tournament archery, which is in world championships, in Commonwealth Games, Olympics. It's very important that target archery still is the competitive side of archery. You're showing me like you've got a collection of broadheads up there, and you're showing me of how one was made from a thirty thirty round. Oh yeah, back in the uh, of course when the World War Two ended, uh, a lot of properties were given three o threes to the while the men were away, the kangaroos went berserk in Australia, nothing to cull them. So when the war ended, a lot of uh, property owners were giving three o three cartridges or surplus war stuff. Of course, a lot of that stuff um, was free, freely available to a lot of returned soldiers and blah, blah. But uh, the, making broadheads, there was no Australian broadheads. And I think it was Bill Bowden down in, um, in Victoria. They got the, um, melted the lead out of the 303s and got the actual shell. And they uh, cut a slot in it and made a broadhead and welded it up. And they sold those commercially. So they were the first really national commercial retail broadheads and we've got several of them up there on display. So technically that's the first Australian made broadhead? I think so. When we say, no, I wouldn't say the first one ever made, but I think the first one ever went into retail. Yep, righto. Yeah. He also made target arrows too. And... Um, yeah, so there was uh, a lot of people made their own bows. There was a lot of experimentation, especially about that bun, bun time in, um, in Melbourne, who I told you set up a commercial bow making, and that old 100-year-old bow is there. Well, he actually experimented with a lot of native woods, like an Australian timbers. But, and a lot of the modern bow, bow makers today who make self-bows and, and long bows are using Australian-made bows, or Australian timbers for bows. Yes, so a lot of experimentation back as early as 1920s into Australian timbers for bow making. Yep. Uh, the, um, you were talking about arrows. Well, of course, yeah. Alan Davies, back in the 60s, um, we imported all our arrowheads, all the good arrowheads from Fred Bear and Howard Hill and... and um, you know, we bought our arrowheads from companies like uh, Robin Hood Archery Company and Fred Bear and those. 
So most of our arrowheads were imported, but very, very costly, as you can imagine. So to get what happened was George Scott, who was importing all this American gear, said to Alan Davies, Alan, you're a tool maker. Why don't you have a go? And Alan actually needed some for his own use. So he experimented with a, a head called a Zicky, Zicky Delta, which was, of course, Zicky's an American maker. So he actually copied the head and turned out the first Davies broadheads. Now, we used to buy those broadheads at two and six or 25 cents each, which is really cheap. But when, to history of it, Alan was using an electric welder and uh, too much uh, heat near the point used to uh, ruin the temper of the head. So when you shot him and you hit a rock, quite often it bent back. When you went to straighten it, it'd break off. So we ended up with all these rabbit heads with shovel noses on. It wasn't until later that Alan perfected the making of the thing and the Davies Broadhead, which is now known as Tuskers, were probably the only Broadhead, were the first Broadhead to get bow hunting really going. Him and George Scott are the two main players in bow hunting in Australia as far as equipment goes. Yep. And... Oh, I'm bad of questions. Well, I'm... let me say that Alan Davies sold the business to John Teitzel and it was a Davies Broadheads and he went to uh, to make so many, the Delta, the uh, there were so many different models he turned out. Then he sold it to John and John came up with pre-sharpened Broadheads where you had to sharpen them before. John came up with pre-sharpened also screw-ins. So then John sold the, the business and I don't know who has it at present. I haven't followed that up. Yep. I'm... I'm bad with questions because I'm, I'm, everything you're saying is so interesting. I, I'm just caught, all caught up in it. Well, not really. We, what we're going to see is we're going to... One of the main things that you wanted to know a lot about is the disappearing teepee. Remember that? Yep, yep. You asked me about what's this disappearing teepee you said. Yeah, I saw the post on like I couldn't wrap my head around it, so... Well, you remember seeing the Indian head on the Trophy Bowhunters of Australia? Yep. That was brought back from America by a bloke called Norm Adamson. Norm is, I just did a Facebook on him. He contacted me after 40 odd years from America. He's living in Washington. And um, there were three of us on a hunting trip and we had this, I said, the next time we come, we'll all bring some design for badges. So I did 30 badges designs and Norm brought one. And in the three of us, two votes to mine, he got the Indian head and I got the name, Trophy Bowhunters of Australia. So that's why the Indian head's there. Over the years, we had embroidered, as you saw, pockets, but back in the old days of embroidery, back in the 60s and 70s, they didn't have computers, so we always got cross-eyed Indians. They couldn't make their eyes properly, so we got cross-eyed Indian. We went from blazers pockets to shoulder badges, but uh, yeah, that's that's how it started. But with the Indian influence, um, when we had a safari, that was the only time we had people from every state in Australia attending. And as you know, the the trophy bow hunters of Australia actually cut the the states into zones and had measurers and and people in each state in Australia. So when we held a safari, everybody came to the safari that could and we'd hold a, a kind of general meeting there and they'd make policies and meet each other. And, and But also we measured Australian records. That's the only time a record could be measured and certified was at the safari um, in before everybody and measured by official measurers. Well, um, when we had these meetings, we'd be sitting out in the open. There was no tent big enough to put everybody in. And we usually sat in a circle so everybody like Indian style, not purposely, but that way everybody could see each other and sit rather than sit in lines or squares. So two people, a bloke by the name of Alan Ede and uh, Paul Weller, Paul Weller passed away, he made uh, Banshee, I think it was Banshee or Warrigal, I'm not sure, bows, long bows. He came out of Melbourne, I was talking to his widow here a uh, day or two ago, Is. Um, She's coming to the uh, to the to see the uh, vanishing uh, TP, but <clears throat> Paul and Alan and another chap from Sydney Bowhunters actually 
created this giant teepee and we used to hold the meetings in the teepee. Now it was in this teepee that we decided that we would form ABA to take over the governing body and it was in this teepee that Kev Whiting was elected the person to start it. So the teepee has a lot of history. Now when Sid Green came into the picture and he took over ABA, he also took over TBA and he joined TBA and ABA together. So when he did, he put a lot of people's noses out of joint who had worked hard. The hunters who just wanted to hunt, they didn't want to shoot field, they just wanted to hunt and they'd worked for years to get TBA up. When he did that, he didn't consult anybody, he just went ahead and did it. And I, they had their meetings in Queensland. The old blokes said, the, a lot of the old blokes said, they're not getting the TP. They may get TBA, but they'll never get the TP. So the TP disappeared. And that was a way back in the 80s. Well, since then, the TP reappears at shoots every now and again. It just mysteriously is put up at a shoot on display and then it'll disappear for another three or four years or five years. And then all of a sudden it'll appear again and they called it the disappearing teepee. Nobody knows who the keepers are, but whoever they are are looking after this teepee. So they've done that for nearly 40 years. And of course, no, nobody wants to give it to ABA. The ABO, I don't know whether they know about or whether they're interested, but the people who've got it are dedicated never to give it to ABA. Now, the disappearing teepee has become a, a, a bit of a legend in bow hunting because of its where it was at the beginning of bow, Australian bow hunting and because this, it was a historical factor at meeting and the making of bow hunting was in this teepee. And I've got a good news for you. The, the uh, disappearing teepee will magically appear at the museum and people will be able to see it. And also at the museum, while we're on it, is Peter Rogers from uh, Cobar will be napping or creating Indian arrowheads out of rock. You know where they, f they yep. nap the arrowheads like the Indians do? And another bloke, we were talking about broadheads display, Bill Meek and uh, Brian Nash are the two largest uh, broadhead collectors in Australia. They go to America and swap American, uh, our Australian heads with the Americans and buy, bring back uh, Americans. So they have uh, probably one of the largest or two of the largest um, collections in the world, but they've certainly got the largest in Australia. Now, Bill Meek is actually bringing a small display of assorted broadheads, probably a couple of hundred, to show at the the awards. So that'll be another thing that'll happen. Now, while we're on that subject, what, when can people, like if people are interested in c coming out and having a look, when can they do that? Well, they can just come on the on the 16th of June. It's open to the everybody, the public, the families, everything. 16th of June, it'll be at the, uh, the uh, Bathurst RSL. I think it's in Rankin Street in Bathurst. It starts at 11 o'clock. You buy your own lunch. There's a bistro there and the meals are usually about 14 to 15 bucks. You can buy whatever, drink, coffee and so forth. The actual official program starts at one o'clock. That's the presentations. It looks like we'll have a member of parliament and, and hopefully, we won't know till tomorrow, maybe the mayor will come from Bathurst to officiate as well. So we've certainly got that lovely lady, June Pettinger, who's the daughter of, uh, of Percy Stoke and she'll be here with her granddaughter, Rosie Ryan, to present the Percy Stoken medal. So historically, I mean, you can't get much more history than that. I think we're going to have a... a and beside that, you'll see Ben Solaris, Dave Whiting, Paul Southwell from Trophy Takers. You'll see Del Roach, Hans Wright uh, from uh, the, the target side of it. You'll see Paul um, from the, uh, the uh, 3D AA. Uh, the late, of course, we just lost... Um, uh, uh, Millet, which I can't think of his, I've gone, uh, uh, he, he, we've just lost him. We've got um, so many well-known people coming. Uh, of course, Ed Lansky, he's hunted on three continents. There's so many people, you know. Uh, you've got, again, uh, the Keeble. Um, all these people are coming 
and it'll be probably the first and last time you'll see them ever in public again. So the chance to have your photo taken, to have autographs, to be seen, to meet them personally, it's one chance, uh, one chance in history to do it. So That'll be in June this year. June this year, and it'll, and it'll give a lot of people the opportunity to meet some legends, young and old, of archery. Well, I don't know about you, but you'd like to meet Ben Solaris, wouldn't you, and shake his hand? Oh, yeah. I, there's a lot of people I'd like to meet, especially after today, and you've given me the history of I've got. There's a lot, lot of people. What I'd about like to Paul meet. Southwell, who got that that whoppity after only first man in 110 years? Yeah. Or or Hans Ryder went to America and beat. Went into the, uh, the, the biggest championship in America, target championship in America, beat the Americans, set, an Australian, uh, set a world record, or not a world record, a record, uh, an American record in target archery, and they wouldn't give him the trophy because he wasn't an American. So Earl Hoyt had a special trophy. Now, Hans actually had um, a dinner with Howard Hill. So, you know, there's a lot of history going to be there. Our people, we've got a lot of people who've done important things on a world basis and they're going to be here. It's a shame that like I've only learned all this today and it's not that well known. Well, you know, uh, if we can't save this history and there's, you saw how much history is up there and it's visible, you can read all about it, you can glance around, do whatever you like, you can talk to people. Um, if we can't save it, all that history's gone and I don't think Australia will ever have a museum again. So if you want to come, you've got till 2020 to see it. We're already planning 2019. We have probably one of the biggest um, bow hunting trophy displays ever. And they'll see all the number one trophies from trophy takers. We're trying to talk to ABA to bring TBA trophies in, records in. Um, the uh, traditional Archery Australia are going to bring people in to show you bow making, arrow making, string, string making, level work. We're trying to organise a target shoot for target archers. There'll be a, um, um, a 3D shoot for traditional and uh, everybody going on at the same time. It'll be a two-day event next year and it'll be here in Tamworth. I'm sorry, here in Bathurst, I'm going back to Tamworth. Back here in, in Bathurst, and it'll be uh, the Bathurst um, archers are going to host the, use their, their grounds and their, their clubhouse and everything. But the main event will be at night time, will be in the um, uh, RSL, and we're going to see if we can get the auditorium for that. Really big. So there'll be a big shoot, big displays, and I can assure you if it goes ahead like it, the planning's already done. We've got confirmation from different bodies. It's going to be a very big event. That's 2.19. But before that happens, we've got 2.18, which is going to be even bigger. Yep. It's, yeah, I'm excited for it. Well, I am. I hope you come down, Katie. I really do. No, I'm, I'm definitely going to make an effort to come. I don't live that far away, but... Yeah, well, we had um, last year and the year before... Um, Hans Wright was turning 80 a couple of years ago, so we decided to throw him a birthday party here, and he came up from Melbourne, and I took him hunting for a week, and we invited a few people. We had 30 people here, but there was five states represented. <laughs> Last year, we put on a, a birthday party for Kevin Holbert from Liverpool Archers. Uh, Kevin and Traditional Archery Australia, Keith Spate, Les Simpson, uh, actually presented um, their own medals, two traditional medals, two uh, manual edges, and and uh, of course Kevin Holbert, and we had four states represented. So that's in thirty people. So you can imagine how many people we're going to have in this one. Uh, yeah. And I I expect probably seventy, eighty people will be at this one. And that's just a we don't know, we just don't know. Yeah. So it's uh, whoever whoever you get there. We just appreciate and have a good time. We don't care about officials. Yep. On a um, we'll, we'll we'll go in a bit of storytelling. I remember seeing the statue of of you and a boar known as Billy King. King Billy. King Billy. Oh, you got Billy King. Billy King was a tennis player. Lady oh, yeah, tennis yeah. player. Yeah, yeah, no. That, yeah. Uh, this is King Billy. Uh, King Billy uh, was nineteen sixty three. 
I was just, um, I was into bow hunting then. I'd only shot uh, a couple of little pigs and, um, and even then I was protected with guns because in those days, people only went pig shooting with shotguns and 303 rifles. And I lived in a little town called Inverell and when, they, when I said I was going bow hunting with a bow and arrow, everybody laughed at me and reckoned I was a nut. So, oh, you still get that today. I get that. Uh, yeah, oh, they reckon I was a nut. Anyhow, um, a mate and I, uh, two mates, one had a jungle carbine and we set a kerosene tin up at 40 yards and he still couldn't hit it. So we're going to protect me in this uh, country. But anyhow, I, um, I moved to Tamworth and I started a club there, but I wanted to go pig hunting and uh, an old American friend of mine was supposed to go with me the last moment he got uh, pneumonia and couldn't go. So I decided, seeing I had all the gear and everything, I'd go. And um, so a saddler in, in Tamworth had a brother who owned a, who was a publican at a Palomala War mo a, a hotel, a little kind of hotel set off the beaten track outside of Moree. And he, he rang Ernie up and uh, he said to Ernie, oh, Ian's coming out, you've got a lot of property owners there, can you tee him up for a property to go pig shooting on. So when I came there, Ernie, oh, it's a long story, but he put me in, in touch with Ernie. He managed to get two blokes who were travelling through, who were, bought a new car at Inverell, were travelling through to Moree, but they were on the other, living on the other side of Moree, but they, they had been drinking all afternoon and said, do you mind if we have a couple of more drinks? So we waited another hour and then we went to Moree and they said, oh, we'll just have another drink here. So they drank, we were in their pub for another hour, I don't drink, so I noticed in their car there was a young kid, a 14-year-old kid, and I went over, introduced myself to him, and he, we got a talk, and I told him what I was doing. He said, have you heard about that big boar that they're trying to get with a rifle out at, Moor, out at um, Garar? I said, no, what's it about? And he said, oh, they called him King Billy because he's black and vicious, you see. And he was, uh, uh, and because they couldn't get him, he was king. So they called him King Billy. But King Billy also in history forms as the Aboriginals, when the white man came, they hung um, uh, silver plaques around the, the elders or the chief of the tribe, the elder of the tribe. And they did this in America with the Indians too. It gave them, kind of got them on side and, it, and called them that they were allegiance to the queen or the king. And that's where the word King Billy came from because of things. So without being racist, and I don't intend, I love the, king, uh, the history of the Aboriginal. So he told me about King Billy and I was kind of fascinated that they couldn't get him with rifles. He'd ripped two horses and two blokes. And, uh, and of course, out there in the West, if you're a good fighter, you become a legend. Everybody wants to take you on and you become a legend. They talk about you for years. Yep. So whoever could get Hank King real Billy with a rifle would be a legend. But I didn't know anything about that. All I knew was there was a boar and I hadn't seen a... I'd seen a dead boar, but I hadn't... And he was a boar that was vicious and he kind of appealed to me. So eventually we got these two blokes out and got home and, and so the next day these two blokes or, um, or one bloke organised me to go with a... a, a a boundary rider for a big property, but they took a lot of dogs with me. And uh, young Lindsay and I were on the back of this ute. When they'd uh, see a mob of pigs, these dogs would fly off and round the pigs up. And of course, these two blokes in the front, this old boundary rider and the, uh, and, uh, the other bloke, the father of Lindsay's father, they, uh, uh, they had never seen a bow. So I, I got stuck into the pigs. We'd call the dogs off and I'd shoot these pigs. And I didn't call that sport, but it was the first time I got a chance to shoot bigger pigs than what I'd been shooting. So they were just using the bailing technique, really? It was a practice thing. Yep. But every time I'd, I'd shoot a pig, they'd have a, they had a flagon of, a couple of flagons of wine in the front, and they'd have a swing. By the time sundown was up, I'd shot about 10 pigs, and they were as drunk as skunks. So when we got home that night, uh, 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 Lindsay's mother said, Look, uh, I'd, I was really keen to go after this King Billy, but the King Billy was a long way away. And she said, uh, well, my brother manages the place that's on. 
And if you want to go, I'll ring him up. But don't take Dad. Just you and Lindsay go. I said, that sounded good. So to me, we took off early in the morning. She'd arranged and we got out. When we met the uh, Lindsay's uncle, he said, look, he's in the, ca- in the horse paddock. Well, they told me that he was in the horse paddock. So what goes into your mind when you think about a horse paddock? Nobody horse paddock. It's not very big, is it? And he lives in the corner. How good's that? Oh, easy pickings. I had it. I had it all sewn up. When I got out to the garage, it's flat as a pancake, horse paddock, went to the horizon, and cutting cutting through the centre of it was dead dead timber and a bore drain with long high uh, rice, uh, rye grass up over your waist. And the horse paddock extended as far as the eye could see. He was in the corner of the horse paddock, but there was a lot of country mixed with him and a lot of bush. So Lindsay and I hunted all day, and I think I knocked over 11 pigs or something like that, and um, we didn't see any boars. They were all family pigs, you know, sows and, and a thing, a couple of big pigs, but then not boars, just big sows and that. So I was a bit disappointed, and we were driving out, and the sun, we were driving to the west, and the sun was in, the, in our windscreen, and I looked out, and there's a black thing out and out and away from the gra- uh, grass and that, and it was a big black pig, and the sun just touched the the side of the tusk, and it kind of went white, and and he put his head down feeding again, and Lindsay said, "I think that's a boar," and he said he's by himself, which means he's. By the way, King Billy was a barra. A barra is a pig that's been cut caught and cut with the dog, uh, they cut uh, castorate them and they usually turn very mean and hang around an area and when blokes want hams at Christmas they'd go out and get the barrows, they'd get very fat you see, yeah. very big. I think Americans call them barrel hogs. Well I don't know but we, we call them barrows in those days. So he said he's, he's by himself, that means he's a, he's a loner, he's a barrow. So I dropped the car about 60 or 80 yards from him and I took off with the bow. I said to Lindsay, don't get out. Under whatever happens, don't get out. Because this boar was a killer. He was, he'd ripped two blokes. He used to charge from behind and catch them unawares and he ripped the horse's guts. The guts just fell out of the horses. So um, I went and uh, I got into him. I put one arrow right behind the shoulder and I, I'll show you some photos. And he, uh, he spun round the circle. And as he spun round the circle, I put another arrow about two or three inches from him. And he just charged. And man, he comes straight at me. Well, I'd never been charged by a bull before. I was 20, 20 years of age, I think. And I just, I didn't even decide to run. I just ran. I turned me back on this thing. And I ran and I ran and I beat him to the, he was right on my heels. I could hear him chomping and I just made the front of the Volkswagen and dived up on the on the bonnet and he hit the side of the mudguard and dented it and cut it right along the, the mudguard and he went past me and he, 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 he started to slow down and he turned around to come back at me and I hit him again, hit him in the chest and then he, he, he went off again and he he just eventually went down, he died and went down. That's basically the story, I've forgotten all the details, but that's basically <laughs> the story. I know I turned into a coward when it was with the man. But was that the first door? <laughs> and I got him and uh, the uh, uncle said, if you guys are not out by dark, I'll come looking for you. By the time we loaded King Billy up onto the roof rack, mind you, hole as bowlers, and uh, we drove out, he was driving in, and he, he said, I'll soon tell you whether it's him or not, because he'll have bullet, sh- bullet holes in him, bullet scars, and his uh, ear, where he'd been cut when he was a thing. He said, yeah, without a doubt, that's King Billy. And that was King Billy. So I drove him 90 mile, we drove him back to Moree and then all the way back to Inverell, and broke, brought the family out at two o'clock in the morning to have a look at King Billy. <laughs> they weren't amused. Oh, a lot of blokes around here will get up for that. <laughs> Anyhow, he's a legend in his own, in my own mind. Oh yeah, that's. You know, you boys get a reputation. Well, they yeah, legends in their own right. He's forgotten today. I brought the story up. In fact, 
the trophy takers have got a newsletter out and I've written the story for trophy takers and the story is, is there. I'll let you read the story when you think. Yeah. So that's a little bit of the bow hunting. Yeah. Okay. Um, in all the collection in the museum, in your opinion, what is like the, the most valuable piece of the history in there? Well, I'm putting you on the spot. I know. Well, not really, because the sixth century, a sixteenth century arrow is very valuable, but it's not Australian history. It's an Indian or uh, Odi elephants Indian history. Um, probably the most valuable in there. It'd have to be well, Kim Millett's quiver. Kim just passed away. Is emotionally something that's valuable to me because it was made especially for me. I never ever used it, it's brand new, it's still in the thing. But I think um, uh, uh, Ross Heron's bows, because they're beautifully made, uh, Australian bow, and you saw the laminations, the artwork in them is, the craftsmanship is absolutely spectacular. Would yeah. you say? Oh, they're, they're unique in their own way. And of course they're collector's items today, people are collecting them and and one of those bows would be worth $2,000 by themselves. And we have, I think, five or six, probably seven bows in the collection. Um, I think also um, any of the, that 100-year-old bow belonging to Richard Andrew Rather, um, it's on loan. All the stuff in the museum's on loan to me. It'll be returned, and we do paperwork for it. I forgot to mention that. Um, it's very, very valuable for me because it's... 100-year-old bow, you don't see too many around. No. And the bloke who bought it from in 1923 actually fed his family for 30 years with it, with goats and rabbits and stuff like that. And then he, he passed it on to Richard, and Richard uh, was one of Richard's first bows, and he kept it for many years, and he gave it to me, oh, I'd be nine years ago, um, to put in a museum, which we didn't have at that stage. So I've had it all that time and now it's in the museum and we've done write-ups on it. It's a very valuable piece, I think. Yeah, it's... And I think that the Trophy Bowhunters of Australia original artwork is pretty valuable too. Oh, yeah. It's not... I think what really I found really interesting was the Papua New Guinea uh, archery gear. The which? The, the archery gear from the Papua New Guinea, is it? Oh the, oh, the Papua New Guinea, the, uh, yeah, that was interesting stuff. It's just like the designs and like how they were made, I found that interesting. Yeah, well, of course, they killed each other with those things, and they still do. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, on the other side of that display, what do you think of all the bows from 1936 to about 1963? Oh, that, yeah, I like, I like them. I like how, like the progression of how the design Yeah, how it's gone from wooden bows right up to metal bows to the Apollo English bows, the, the Swedish bows. Yeah, and just the craftsmanship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we've got some uh, beautiful knife makers. I didn't show you the knives made by Australian bow, bow makers. Um, we've got Australian bows there. Uh, you've got the full history of um, um, the Hall of Fame is there and the expos that we had. You've got the full history of traditional archery Australia, the full history of trophy takers, the full history of bow hunting there. Uh, we've got the full history of all the magazines in Australia there, which is very interesting. And as you saw, the history of, of archery action and then the, the Archer's Journal and then the bow hunting down under and, of course, the South Pacific bow hunter, uh, the Arrowhead, they're all in there, all the history, all the different editions, the years they were started, and the Australian Bow Hunter magazine and... Uh, yeah, from 1974 right through. Yeah, well, I think we, we've done very well. I've talked too much. No, that's, that's not a bad thing. That's how podcasts work. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> well, this is very interesting. I thank you for uh, taking the time to see the museum. And I'd just like to dedicate the museum to my lovely wife, Roma, who you've met. And um, you understand how, how dedicated she is to seeing it yep. come to fruition. So I'd, like to, I'd like to thank both of you for your hospitality and like just look after me and taking your time out of your day to show me around and give me the history. Mate, it's our pleasure. You know, you're our next generation. I mean, if we can in, give you a little bit of history, you'll take it on to the next generation. Maybe you'll tell somebody. 
or remember a name or something and you saw the real thing. I mean, you saw some paintings today which you'll, in some years to come, you'll say, I was there when that was being done. You know, you'll see a lot of, you'll have a lot of history to repeat that a lot of people haven't seen. Yeah, I'm really hoping this podcast will, will help get the message out and let you know that the work that you've been doing. Maybe they've got earache from me talking and they've turned off before this, but yes, I hope it does and I thank you for that uh, chance to promote it. I hope with their support we can stop this museum from being uh, dismantled by 2020. But it needs to have the support of of people so that the council, we're hoping to get the Bathurst, convince the Bathurst Council, but if there's no kind of uh, support from the archers, then there's not going to be any support from the townspeople or from the council. So we really need the archers to support the the idea of the museum. Okay. Where can people well, get more information or learn a little bit more? Yeah, if... Just turn up to the... Have a look at the Facebook. Facebook on uh, uh, the Australian Archery Museum on Facebook. Thanks to Alan Bowman, of course, uh, Bow Hunting Down Under magazine has the... Inside the back cover, there's a, uh, a, um, a bow hunting one of our posters and also an ad for the magazine. But mainly, I would say go onto Facebook, learn as much as you can and just talk about it amongst, amongst yourselves. There's a lot of history out there of clubs. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of people who, who we would like to see rewarded. Obviously, we don't know everybody in bow hunting. So we want to get people in Western Australia, South Australia, people who've dedicated their lives but never got re... We want to reward them, and we've only got a couple of years to do it. So if they've got anything, they can contact the... Through Facebook, they've got a messaging thing there, as you know, and they can, they can reach us through there. Yep, excellent. Well, Ian, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Cody. Yep. Thanks very much. Yep, catch you next time. <laughs>